Welcome to Yo Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Kimberly Nicholas, Associate Professor of Sustainability Science at Lund University in Sweden and Director of PhD Studies at the Lund University Center for Sustainability Studies. In her research, Professor Nicholas studies the connections between people, land, and climate with the goal of stewarding ecosystems to support a good life for everyone alive today and leave a thriving planet for future generations. She has published over 55 articles on climate and sustainability in leading peer-reviewed journals, writes for publications such as Elle, The Guardian, Scientific American, and News and New Scientist, and is the author of Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World from 2021, as well as the monthly climate newsletter, We Can Fix It. On January 12, 2022, Professor Nicholas will give a virtual talk Facing Climate Change with Facts, Feeling, and Action as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2021-2022 Cressman Lecturer and part of the Imagining Futures series. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Paul. I'm so glad to be here. So first, um, tell us a little bit about your background and how your background led you to an interest in sustainability science. Sure. I grew up in the countryside in the hills above the town of Sonoma in California, about an hour north of San Francisco. So I entertained myself catching tadpoles and climbing trees and running around outside. So I've always had a love of nature. And in college, I realized that I could make a career of that. So I had a chance to be a research assistant as an undergraduate to several professors uh, where I was studying at Stanford. And I thought it was really fun and delightful to get to hike around and look at patterns and try to figure things out. So that was my beginning. And over time, I think my work has shifted more to focus on the connection between people and nature, because it's so clear that every square inch on earth has been affected by people. Even if people haven't physically set a foot there, we're changing the whole planet through our actions like burning fossil fuels and causing climate change. So it, to me, it became really essential to focus on this connection and that's at the heart of sustainability. So let's talk a little bit about the beginning of your career. So as you said, you were born and raised in Sonoma, California. And for your PhD work at Stanford University, you studied the effect of climate change on the California wine industry. We have a thriving wine industry, as you know, in Oregon as well. Would you tell us a little bit about that research and what you found? Sure. So my work for my PhD and beyond was focused on two main questions. One, how has and will climate change affect wine growing? So what happens in the vineyard and the quality of wine that we drink on our tables? And secondly, how are people reacting to it, preparing for it, adapting? And what are the limits to that adaptation? Basically, what we found is that Climate change is already affecting vineyards around the world, including the West Coast of the US and elsewhere. Um, and there are basically the more warming we have, the worse it is for high quality wine. The faster we can stop warming, the more options we have to save many of the traditional wine regions and the varieties that we love. And there are real limits to adaptation where it's difficult to imagine wine growing still thriving in many of the places that we enjoy today if we don't get emissions down to zero very quickly. So you are talking to us from Sweden and your career led you to Sweden. So tell us, how did you wind up there? Why, why, why did you go to Sweden? How did you 
what took you there? Well, I want to be a professor and I applied over three years, I think it was 66 faculty jobs. So it was a quite extensive job search. Um, it's a tough market as, as academics well know. And I was lucky enough to get this job uh, in Sweden. I had never been to Sweden or Scandinavia when I was recruited here. So I didn't know what to expect, but I came for a visit, really loved it and took the jump. And I've been very happy here and have a wonderful life here that only Downside is that it is across an ocean from my family and friends and loved ones in the US and especially as I'm have dramatically reduced my flying and and would love to go flight free those are the one flights I haven't been able to give up going from a former frequent flyer, but I haven't been able to stop flying uh, yet to see my family and friends back in North America. So one of the things that I understand is that Sweden has emerged as a leader in addressing climate change. Can you tell us about some of their notable initiatives and accomplishments in that effort? Sure. Well, one thing that I think is important to say up front is that Sweden is a leader and we are doing a lot of great things here, but it's still not enough. So um, we still have to go about four times faster or more than we have been historically in Sweden to reduce emissions to be in line with the Paris Agreement. So. With that in mind, we're still doing better than many other countries in Europe and North America who've been historically major emitters. One thing I think is really important that Sweden has accomplished is that the overwhelming majority of politicians are committed to addressing climate change. And there it's a different political system here than in the US. We have eight political parties in parliament, all but one of them, so seven out of eight, stand behind our climate law, which says we'll reduce emissions uh, basically to zero by 2045 and have mechanisms in place to do that. Now, we're not on track to achieve that goal yet, but that goal has broad political support. And I think that is really important. Um, some other things that we have done here in Sweden, I mean, we have the highest carbon tax in the world. Um, but again, there's a bit of a cautionary tale there because even with a carbon price of $120 per ton, we've only been reducing emissions about 1% per year. And rich countries like Sweden and the US, we should be reducing 10% a year, so 10 times faster. So to me, that says we need, of course, market mechanisms to line up and the incentives. It, it makes no sense to have it be cheaper to pollute than to have a habitable planet. But at the same time, carbon pricing itself alone is not going to be sufficient uh, to actually address climate change in time. So that raises a question for me. You've, you emphasize in the book and in your other um, public uh, science work, the importance of um, storytelling to help accomplish this goal of changing the way that we as humans who inhabit this planet um, respond to these challenges. You wanna say a little bit about your view on that, why that's important. And I guess this also links to a question about why you went from being a scientist who only publishes in scientific journals to being a scientist who writes uh, books for a general audience and, and maintains uh, websites and uh, newsletters. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I don't have to tell someone at the Humanities Center why stories are important. And maybe this is something I should have learned earlier myself. But I guess, I mean, I've always been a reader and someone who loves stories. My dad grew up telling me and my sister 
podcasts are making up stories that I still fondly remember about Melissa Woodchuck, uh, you know, parables and life lessons from Melissa Woodchuck. Um, and I think, I mean, it's understood that humans relate to each other and make sense of our lives and experiences and share and pass down information and wisdom and traditions through stories. Um, and I think we're just starting to realize how urgently we need stories and different kinds of stories in the climate crisis that, of course, we need the science that is really firmly established. And we have to build on that to make smart decisions. But, you know, knowing what the science tells us, which is it's warming, it's us, we're sure it's bad, we can fix it. That's great that we have that basis. And we have thousands of peer reviewed reports that that give us confidence in those conclusions. But then what do we do with that? And how do we see ourselves, each of us actually, who's alive right now, we happen to be alive at this incredibly critical time for life on earth. And we need to see ourselves a path for ourselves to be a part of a larger story, which is achieving this mission of stabilizing the climate, making it possible for people and nature to thrive now and in the future. And that's really what's at stake, which underpins everything we love and care about, everything about our civilization, whatever and wherever and whoever it is that you love, that is what is at risk from uncontrolled climate change. So I think finding ways to be play meaningful roles and link our own uh, understandings of ourselves and narratives about ourselves with this larger story of the cathedral that we're building and climate stability is just essential, an essential project for it our lifetimes and especially this next really critical decade. Will you explain why you use the the analogy of the cathedral building? That's an interesting uh, point. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, it's quite concrete for me living in, in Sweden and in Europe. So in, in my adopted hometown here of Lund, there's a cathedral that's almost 900 years old. And it's really humbling to walk by it every day to listen to you know uh, performances held in this beautiful space and think about the people who built it and we don't know their names history doesn't know who they were there were hundreds if not thousands of them who contributed you know, all along the chain from everything that needed to happen bringing the materials together the skill to assemble them and most of them may not have lived to see the end of that project but they got started anyway and I think that's such an important lesson for us to rise, raise our sights beyond the short term instant gratification, doom scrolling, even four year election cycles. Think on the lifetime of our lives on Earth and what good can we leave, can we create while we're here and leave behind us that will last. And stopping catastrophic climate change is about the most meaningful and high impact thing any of us can do. You've argued that individuals with high socioeconomic status have special responsibilities for addressing climate change. Will you explain why? Sure. So initially this idea was very abstract to me, but now I've really realized, you know, when I say people with high socioeconomic status, I'm really talking about myself and my friends from college. We're definitely in this group, actually, as are the majority of Americans. If you make over $38,000 per year, you're actually among the 10% of the richest people on earth. And I know at that level, it might not feel like it in the US, but it, it just puts into perspective how uh, exceptional the US is globally. And I think that puts in, of course, the higher up you are on the income ladder, 
the larger your emissions tend to be. So this group, this 10%, we collectively cause about half of household climate pollution. So we are a major emitter. We will not solve climate change without tackling overconsumption in this group. Fortunately, this group has the means through what I call the five climate superpowers to actually address many of those emissions. And both through our personal choices at home and by acting collectively, politically and through organizations, we actually can make an enormous difference. So I, I really focus my work on this group because there's so much untapped power that I think if we can tap into a little bit better can be truly transformative. So you recently concluded a five-year investigation of sustainable food systems in Euros. Tell us a little bit about that investigation and what you found. Sure. So this was a project looking at uh, the social, environmental, and economic benefits and trade-offs of our agriculture system in Europe. And basically what we found is, I think the most important result had to do with farm subsidies. So in Europe, there's about close to 60 billion euros per year. The largest budget item of the whole European Union goes to farm subsidies. And it's been very difficult to track and trace and understand that data and know where the money is being spent. So we <laughs> spent a lot of time and effort translating from Lithuanian and every other <laughs> European language, aligning everything, fixing it up and figuring out where that money goes. And the bottom line is, what we found is that about 40% of this huge amount of public financing is misspent. It's actually increasing income inequality because it's paying the richest farmers and it is paying for the most polluting kinds of agriculture. So the goals of, of the program overall are to make it possible for farmers to make a living and to support climate-friendly and biodiversity-friendly agriculture. But what we found is that the way it's formulated now, that's not the case. And I think there have been some recent reports, one very recent on global farm subsidies that uh, largely track what we found. So I think it, to me, highlights this huge potential. Basically, we're doing so many dumb things right now on a global scale that incentivize the wrong things that make it cheaper to produce and consume things that are unhealthy and damaging the climate. And there's so much potential to turn these systems around if we align the incentives better. So um, given what you've just said about we're doing all these things wrong, um, you are also committed to the idea that we can fix it. And you have a newsletter called We Can Fix It. So tell us about that newsletter and, and why you undertook it and why it's important. Sure, well, I started the newsletter right after I finished the book Under the Sky We Make. So I sent it off to the publisher and then I had a gaping hole in my life of where am I gonna put all this writing energy that I've been pouring into the book for the last you know four years almost while I was working on it. And I, I really was enjoying developing this conversational tone and really a conversation with readers. And the book wasn't going to be out for several months. And I thought I can have a, more of an ongoing conversation. So I started the newsletter, it comes out once a month. It is about, as you said, facing climate change with facts, feelings, and action. That is the structure of the book as well. And what I want to do in the newsletter and in the book both is take the scientific evidence that's out there and to make 
make it relevant for people, help people connect with how does this affect my everyday life? What can I do about this? What is the news I can use? What do I need to know? What do I need to not worry about? I think that's also a, a big uh, service that I want to provide is let's focus our energy and attention on where it really matters. So it's been really gratifying. It's um, coming up on the end of the first year now we have a uh, 2,500 subscribers, and I would love to, anyone who's listening is very welcome to join as well. Um, and it's been a really nice way for me to hear from people and kind of hear directly what's on people's minds, what are the questions they have, what are the struggles they're having. So I feel like it helps me be in conversation with the people I'm trying to reach and give them the information they need to make the changes they want in, in their lives and in the world. So another um, project that you're involved with is the Take Off Staying on the Ground project. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, that's a research project that where we're studying this phenomenon that has started in Sweden and really taking off worldwide, which is the flight free movement. So here in Sweden, starting several years ago, a number of factors combined to put staying on the ground, avoiding flying for the sake of climate to put that on the agenda. And it's a combination of what I'm really interested in about it is this example of personal behaviors scaling to a cultural change and the way in which that happens. So we have here in Sweden several years now of examples of, for example, celebrities pledging not to fly, a campaign getting started and getting a, a, a coordinated group of people together, making that pledge and pledging to talk with others about why uh, the climate damage of flying and alternatives to flying we also have a lot of political discussion and debate and even policy. There was a flight tax uh, enacted in Sweden in 2018. And now we see these uh, issues are spreading around the world. There are you know, many groups that are protesting airport expansion. There were um, a lot of, well, there should have been much more discussion during the pandemic about the climate impact of aviation. There was a lot of focus on, oh no, the pandemic is really bad for the airlines. When can they get back to normal? And that's, I think, the wrong question. Uh, you know, the question needs to be, what is a level of aviation that the world can afford and still meet our climate goals? Because aviation is incredibly climate polluting and there are, unfortunately, unlike most other sectors, there aren't good technological solutions or alternatives available for aviation, which means we actually have to reduce the amount of flying, especially for frequent flyers. So you just raised the issue of the pandemic and you, you spoke about one, one small aspect of what the pandemic taught us about um, uh, the airline industry and about flying, et cetera. Say a little bit more about, I mean, there are multiple ways in which your work is relevant to our experience of the pandemic, but say a little bit about your understanding of the relationship between climate change and the occurrence of pandemics? Well, I think the thing that's on my mind most recently about the pandemic is really two things. One is, unfortunately, the spending to cope with and try to recover from the impacts of the pandemic has been at odds with benefiting the climate and enacting the policies we know are needed to stop climate change and that also benefit people's well-being and the economy. So there was a, a study right before the last UN climate negotiations in Glasgow, so six weeks or so ago, that showed that only 18% of government 
policies and, and spending related to the pandemic were enhancing and in line with meeting climate goals. So that's just a huge missed opportunity. So policymakers, politicians are not getting the message yet and need to hear from much louder constituents and voters that we demand they use their power to actually deliver on their Paris promises and, and stop warming. I think the second thing is, you know, we see how important communication and solidarity and collaboration are that we need really clear leadership and we need a sense of creating solidarity that we're in this together that we can support each other and i do see many examples of that but also many worrying examples of where that is not the message that leaders are delivering so i mean on a, on a really practical level there's a lot we are learning and have learned from the pandemic i mean one travel is a huge one so we've all had to make big changes to our behavior. So for example, in my field in academia, we uh, stopped going to conferences in person. I just was uh, an examiner for a PhD in Switzerland from this same room in my house where I am now uh, joining by Zoom. So we've discovered there are a lot of things we can do virtually and that cuts the emissions a lot. Commuting to work by car is often a very large source of emissions and that also has declined. So I wish and I'm trying to push for that we actually use the lessons that we have learned for the right reasons. And for example, support walking and biking, reduce the need for cars, support public transit as a effective and climate measure instead of, um, you know, unfortunately the opposite that we've seen in some cases, but there are places that are doing it right and we can learn a lot from them. So you mentioned the Glasgow conference that recently ended. What are your thoughts about the results of that conference? We're going in the right direction, but too slowly. So there has been substantial progress before, you know, the international climate um, negotiations happened through the United Nations process. The Paris Agreement in 2015 is the big milestone. Uh, I was privileged enough to be in the room actually where the Paris Agreement was adopted because I was there as an um, observer from the university. So I know that things have accelerated quite a bit in a good direction. Um, so before the Paris Agreement, the projections were that we were headed for something like four degrees of global warming. Now we, with current policies and pledges, where it's something like two and a half degrees. That is much better because we know that every fraction of a degree makes a huge difference for life on earth and for, for people and the 8 million species we share the planet with. But it's definitely not good enough. We, the goal of the Paris Agreement is to limit warming to 1.5 degrees or well below two degrees. But we know now from research that, especially since the Paris Agreement was adopted, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees, it doesn't sound like much, but it really is the difference between life and death for many people and places around the world. So we really have to fight for 1.5. And to do that, that means we have to make a very fast and also fair transition away from fossil fuels, away from industrial, especially animal-based agriculture towards sustainable systems that actually work for the people and the planet. So among the many things that you do and are interested in is the mentoring of early career scientists. Why is that something that's important for you? 
I really appreciate the energy and perspective that I get from working with students. And so this week I just started, uh, kicked off my latest group of four master students that I'll be mentoring in their thesis. And today I went for a walk in the botanical garden with a, one of my PhD students. And I think it's just very important to have a broader perspective to learn from people at different stages and from different perspectives. I also benefited a lot from mentoring myself. And so I, I want to give that back. Um, and I think especially working on climate and sustainability, there's so many justice issues and there's so much about climate change that is deeply unfair. And one of those injustices is that young people have done the least to cause climate change and are opposed to live with it and suffer its effects the most. So I think it's really critical to involve young people and at the table, not just in a tokenistic way, but to give them space to lead and, and help develop the skills and, and knowledge and capacity that they have to lead. So I really appreciate that I get to play that role. So you've made very clear that teaching is really important to you. Will you tell us about a course that you teach or that you've recently taught? Sure. Well, the most recent course that I taught was a weekend long PhD course called Storytelling for Science in the Climate and Ecological Emergency. And I really love that. We had about 15 PhD students uh, from around Sweden participate. And I and a few colleagues put together the, the course. It was very much practice based. And I think my favorite part about it was empowering people to raise their voices and to find their stories to share. And I think a scientist, that's not a skill that we're usually trained in. I've had the chance to do a lot of science communication and media training from some really brilliant uh, teachers and mentors and colleagues and journalists who've donated their time to help bridge that gap. And I'm just very grateful for that and want to try to give back because I think scientists do have a really important and unique role to play in the climate crisis. Our combination of knowledge, but also firsthand experience and stories, I think can be really powerful. And we know from surveys that the public does trust and does want to hear from scientists. So I think it's important that people feel empowered to speak out and share what they know and share their experience. So we're coming to the end of our time, Kim. This will be my last question. Um, you created a Spotify playlist to accompany your book. Will you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, so it's actually my Instagram stories right now, this um, playlist called If My Book Were Music. That was as I was finishing up the book and I guess kind of reflecting and, and thinking back on the whole process of creating it. And I really like to play with the intersection between um, different media. So for me, music is a great way to evoke emotion and to capture kind of a feeling or a moment. So there was something, uh, I basically put together some of my favorite songs and uh, some of them I was listening to like obsessively on repeat while I was writing the book or stuck on certain points and others to me capture a, a lesson or a moment in time or evoke something for me that was part of the mood uh, that I felt in, in a particular chapter. So I guess I just wanted to create a different way of uh, creating space for the book and a way to experience it in a in a totally new way so yeah i would i'm happy to share that playlist uh we'll we'll make sure to disseminate it thanks so much kim it's been great talking to you we're so looking forward to your lecture thanks so much for taking the time this evening i guess it's evening for you and we'll see you in a few weeks that sounds great thank you paul
I've been speaking with Kimberly Nicholas, Associate Professor of Sustainability Study Science at Lund University in Sweden and author of Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World. On January 12th, 2022, she'll give a virtual talk, Facing Climate Change with Facts, Feeling and Action, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2021-2022 Cressman Lecturer and part of our Imagining Futures series. Thanks so much for watching.